1: In the final lines of Railroad Stories, a compendium of humorous tales by famed Yiddish writer Shalom Aleichem, we meet a salesman traveling through the Russian Pale of Settlement. Someone approaches the salesman. I wanted to ask what your business is. What exactly do you deal in? The salesman responds, what do I deal in? Not in citrons, my friend, not in citrons. His trade while lost on the narrator would have been clear to any reader based on the following description. I provide a commodity that everyone knows about, but no one ever talks about all over the world. In Paris, in London, in Budapest, in Boston. But my headquarters are in Buenos Aires. This man was in the business of sex trafficking. Welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm McKenna Mezzestrano, and today I'll be interviewing Mir Yarfitz about his new book, Impure Migration, Jews and Sex Work in Golden Age, Argentina which was published in 2019 by Rutgers University Press. Meir is associate professor of history at Wake Forest University, and he earned his PhD in history from UCLA. Meir's research and teaching interests include US-Latin American relations, cultural production, social movements, dictatorship and resistance, racial hierarchies, migration, gender, sexuality, masculinity, and transgender studies. Mir, it's great to have you here today. Thank you so much for joining us.
0: Hi, it's great to be here.
1: Can you tell us a little more about yourself and how you came to research Jewish sex work in Argentina?
0: Yeah, so, I mean, I came to this topic fairly early in graduate school. Um, It it, it grew out of work that I'd been doing um, just after undergrad on a a Fulbright when I was in in Buenos Aires for a year. Uh, And I was interested at that time in labor history and the very interesting um, anarchist movement of the early 20th century. And but, you know, I was always interested in Jewish history as well, and I honestly was in part looking for an excuse to study Yiddish as well as, as Spanish, um, <clears throat> and to find a dissertation topic that would allow me to bring together my interests in gender and sexuality, you know, ideally with Jewish studies and um, and, and with Argentine history. And, you know, while this subject can seem sort of maybe very specialized or exotic or strange to, I don't know, an average person in the U S in Argentina. And certainly among the Buenos Aires Jewish community um, it is sort of all too well-known, right? Um, Because, you know, the, the, the history of Jewish management, particularly this is Ashkenazi Jewish management of sort of international sex trafficking between the 1890s and the 1930s was, you know, on the one hand, I argue in the book, somewhat disproportional to the, the scale of the Jewish population, right? It was, there were not that many Jews and a, a fair number of them were involved in this industry, but it also resonated with various anti-Semitic tropes and was thus very well known, right? Both the people inside and outside the Jewish community. And it's, it's something that, you know, in the as that community developed was, was something that people didn't really want to be talking about all the time, didn't want to be talking about all the time at the time, fought against, it, right, as I talk about in the book, and continued in, in subsequent decades to really, you know, try to cover up and and and, and not have taint this community, um, you know, sort of in an ongoing way. And so I came across many references um, to sex work in general when I was, you know, doing this history of you know, sort of working class movements and labor. And one of the things that I was struck by at that time was that, you know, these working class movements, you know, in which Jews as well as the Italian and Spanish and other immigrants that made up really the majority of the population in in Buenos Aires at the time in this, this city of immigrants, um, there was not a sense of solidarity or common cause with Sex workers, they weren't saying we're all workers, um, you know. On the contrary, these these far left movements tended to see women in prostitution as either kind of the as as victims, right, or as kind of deluded seekers of a bourgeois lifestyle. Um, and I also learned from you know sort of reading around that that there was a large Jewish participation, both as Pimps, brothel owners, madams, and then also as as sex workers themselves, and that there was also this court case in nineteen thirty that broke up um, what was a very well known, sort of mutual aid society, a uh, Jewish mutual aid society and burial society, of um, of pimps, of brothel owners, and madams that had been in legal existence in Buenos Aires and sort of with with a network around the country, um, you know, from sort of nineteen oh six to nineteen thirty. So I was aware of all of this, you know, from even before I started my dissertation. And, you know, there seemed to be, you know, this this stuff had been written about in certain ways. Um, but there seemed to be room for really trying to dig in to a broader range of archival materials. And one of the things that I brought in was the a, real, a deep dive into the Yiddish press. So I spent a long time reading the the Argentine Yiddish press. Um, As well as getting into some archival materials from this um, important Jewish organization that was uh, a local chapter of the International London-Based Jewish Association for the Protection of Girls and Women, you know, that in Buenos Aires worked for many decades to try to rescue women from prostitution and sort of fight against this, um, this pimps mutual aid society. So the project, the project developed from there, um, you know, I worked on my dissertation and then went out into the world, um, you know, got an academic job, sort of taught in some related fields. And that helped me um, put the, uh, you know, the sort of specific issues of the book into a larger context of really thinking about immigration, uh, racialization, you know, anti-Semitism, sort of Jewish whiteness, Um and sort of some of the differences um, and similarities between this sort of Argentine case and then cases of other port cities um, and other, you know, sites of, of major Jewish migration around the world.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that was a really excellent summary of, you know, some of the big issues in the book. And I think that something that I would want people to know is really like there are these really global and complex issues bound up in this case study Um, that I think touch on lots of other important cities throughout history. So we're gonna touch on some of those larger issues, but um, I wanna kind of continue setting the stage a little bit. Could you tell us um, what is the golden age of Argentina? Like what was happening at that time? And specifically how did Jews figure into the broader social and cultural movements of the age? Yeah, so you know,
0: for folks who aren't super familiar with Latin American history or or you know sort of see um, the present as something that you know sort of that as though as though Latin America always has looked like it does today, um, you know maybe surprising to know that I mean Buenos Aires was a city let's say from roughly 1890 through the the First World War certainly that that really. In certain ways, rivaled, let's say, New York City, and looked a lot like New York City in its, um, you know, economic growth, um, you know, in it being a city of just a huge amount of immigration, uh, largely from Europe, right? So this is a time of sort of massive migrations out of Europe, um, and you know, largely from <clears throat> from Southern Europe, you know, Italy, Spain, also many, you know, Jews in particular from Eastern Europe, uh, other immigrants from Germany to some degree from Northern Europe. And this um, this immigration sort of into Argentina, you know, there was to some degree a, a similar immigration happening not only to the, to the U.S. Um, but to Brazil, you know, to other places where these Latin American countries were in many cases deliberately trying to uh, whiten their populations. Right? They were concerned about the the. the you know, folks who were governing those countries wanted to become more civilized. They meant more European. They wanted to kind of dilute their populations of, you know, largely indigenous and African descended peoples with, um, you know, populations they considered more desirable. They attempted to attract Northern and Western European immigrants. And they weren't always as successful in that and and sort of tended to attract European immigrants who they considered slightly less desirable. But you know, again, this is part of the story of kind of racialization, um, in these, in these places that they, they brought in sort of large numbers of male laborers. Um, and, you know, sort of particularly in, in Argentina, they were trying to draw workers to the interior where, you know, they have these sort of, you may have heard of the, the gauchos, the cowboys of the Argentine pampas, you know, the wheat production, the beef production, right? Um, And, you know, so they, they were drawing population to the interior and they, they tried to draw Jewish population to the to the rural areas as well. There was this whole project of um, Jewish settlement. Folks might have heard of the Jewish Colonization Association, um, you know, the Baron Maurice Rothschild. Um, it didn't go very well. The sort of Jewish uh, farming project didn't go very well. Um, and most of those those Jews... There was a settlement called Moisesville, you know, which did continue. But most of those Jews ended up in the capital city, along with, you know, many, many other migrants. This was a time of, you know, sort of demographic imbalance as well. So what that meant was that there were many more male migrants than female migrants. You know, there wasn't the same kind of attempt to draw women. Um, And these conditions, you know, as, as many scholars have argued, sort of set the stage for a Um, sort of large, legal, regulated um, sort of sex industry, right? So as many places around the world at this time followed a French public health model, um, meaning that what they were, you know, societies were concerned about um, sexually transmitted infections, syphilis, gonorrhea, and they felt the best way to prevent the spread of those diseases was to have prostitution be legal, but kind of regulated, meaning that you know, sex workers would be called in once a week to, you know, have doctor's visits be tested. And then if they tested positive, they would be kind of removed from public um, work and and put into these sanitary or lock hospitals. Um, But there was, you know, obviously many, many people didn't want to do that and sort of worked in clandestine ways. Um, But as part of what was really a large leisure because uh, to think about it as like a leisure economy of these many male immigrants, sex work was a really large part of that social world that, that men were engaged in when they weren't working. And this was a time, again, of, of an economic boom, right, where, you know, these laborers were not, um they were not rich, but they had, you know, a little bit of disposable income sort of enough to occasionally engage with sex work as well as other kind of leisure and, and recreation activities.
1: Mm-hmm. So I want to kind of follow one of these threads about the racialization of the immigrants, specifically the Ashkenazi Jewish immigrants to Argentina, which is really what this book um, focuses on. And what I want to talk about a little bit more is that is there was this almost like dichotomy it seemed like between how Argentina viewed Ashkenazi Jews as like racially, how it racially viewed them, as immigrants and yet how these men came to be racialized in comparison to Ashkenazi women when it came to, um, their role in sex trafficking. Can you talk a little bit about that dichotomy and what was driving these different perceptions? Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, first of all, I just, I I know this is a Sephardic studies scenario of, of interest to some of the listeners. Um, you know, there was also a, a Sephardic and Mizrahi population also emigrating to um, Argentina at this time, you know, certainly smaller. They were definitely racialized quite differently from Ashkenazim, um, you know, sort of, they were called Turcos and were considered Middle Eastern. Um, whereas, you know, Ashkenazi Jews were, you know, basically considered, um, you know, generally sort of considered, they weren't necessarily using the term white, but they were considered to be the same as other Europeans in many ways although there was also debate around whether or not you know as Jews coming to a catholic country would they be um you know would they be able to assimilate there was there were certainly pretty intense threads of anti-semitism in in argentina um and you know you see you know various manifestations of that including what has been called the sort of large pogrom that happened in the the streets of Buenos Aires in 1919, the, the tragic week, um, <clears throat> you know, but as in certain other parts of, of Latin America, such as, for example, the Dominican Republic, when Rafael Trujillo brought, you know, Jews in during the 1930s, offering refuge to some Jews, um, you know, as the, um sort of as, as Nazi persecution intensified and many other places were not open to Jews, um, you know, his idea was, well, we can't get the white people that we want exactly, but we can get these Jews and they're sort of closer to what we desire for our civilizing purpose. Um, and, and my sense is that, you know, sort of leaders in in. In Argentina, sort of saw Jews in a similar way, in in, in general, and sort of overall, in general, right? They're not um, an ideal population, but they'll serve as part of our our white project. Um, With, again, as I said, you know, there certainly were intense threads of anti-Semitism as well. So one of the arguments, though, that I make in the book that you pull out, and this is um, just something that I sort of have observed in the sources, and I'm sort of making the case for, is that there may have been a slightly different kind of racializing going on, breaking down along gender lines, because of the the particular narratives of white slavery that were circulating at the time internationally. And now, you know, when I say white slavery, this is a term that predated uh, the word, the, the I, Phrase trafficking, right? Trafficking was a term that was introduced, um, you know, slightly later and sort of began to be really popularized in the 1920s as a way of sort of responding to some of the concerns about the ways in which white slavery was such a racializing term and, and misrepresented what was Often going on on the ground, right? So, you know, we think about the concept of white slavery, and this is a a term that I do a kind of extensive genealogy of in the book. You know, it, it, um, you know, very much comes out of the movement for the abolition of African chattel slavery, and you know, some of the same kind of middle class women around the world who were involved in those movements then joined this movement for the abolition of white slavery, um, which was really the the largest kind of women's issue being engaged in uh, organizationally, institutionally around the world. sort of second only to the, the trying to gain the right to vote in this period. Um, And they very much deliberately, um, you know, use this phrase white slavery to be provocative. And, you know, it certainly has a, a very racist overtone, right? Because underlying the concept is, well, we got rid of, you know, of, black slavery. And now we have something that some people might think of as even worse, white slavery, right? And that, you know, there was a certain impossibility to having a white slave. That's like saying a free slave, right? There's an oxymoron in there, there's a contradiction there. That was part of the provocation. And then of course, the association with, you know, with sex. And the assumption behind it was also that you know, white European women would be kidnapped or tricked into crossing international lines for the purpose of, um, you know, somebody else making money off of their sexualized bodies. And the assumption was also that they would be going to places where they would be having sex with men who were not white. And another argument that I make in my book is I I, I worked a lot in the archives of the League of Nations, which was a major site of um, anti-trafficking sort of research and activism in the 1920s. And, you know, one of the things that I find from sort of mapping out the places where the League of Nations did their work was that I th- this concern about white slavery was very much a concern about population movements. You know, they they were really looking at border cities, at ports, you know, places that were paired, let's say, on both sides of the U.S.-Mexican border. Um, but underlying it, you know, was a concern that that white women might be having sexual contact with non-white men. Um, and again, the, the narrative of white slavery did not necessarily reflect the reality of what was going on. Um, and even at the time, there were critics who were saying, well, there's all these newspaper stories and other kind of literature that was produced in the late 19th, early 20th century about the great dangers of white slavery. It was never happening on that grand of a scale right and it was actually something that was quite difficult to prove um, despite the efforts of many organizations to prove that that's what was going on certainly there were some cases that were uncovered but the majority of you know these cases that were that were followed up on you know as I talk about a lot in the book the people involved the women involved you know often were not kidnapped, right? They often had some sense of what they were getting into, um, you know, and I talk about the complications of that. I'm happy to go into that more. But just to finish this this piece, this question of sort of the racialization of Jewish men versus Jewish women, the story of the white slave is also one that implies a reversal of the traditional um, sort of white master right. Racialized slave. So this turns that upside down. And the idea is that the pimp, the exploiter, the trafficker, you know, must be a man of color. And if not a black man, you know, it's somewhat racialized man. So, you know, the representations of those men um, were often, you know, swarthy dark in some way. And, you know, when they were clearly representations of Jews, were definitely leaning into anti-Semitic stereotypes that racialized Jewish men, but they were also stories that you know often implied. I mean, again, it depended on who was telling these stories. It implied, in some cases, you know, sort of in implying white women, there was a way in which Christian Northern European women were implied, right? But basically, the women were whitened. By these stories, right, and you know, again, as w- when we look at the actual data, Jewish men were not trafficking in Christian women, right? They were using their networks to, you know, bring Ashkenazi Jewish women. They were not bringing in women of other of other groups, of other linguistic groups, of other cultural groups. Um, but again, these stories that were circulating in Europe, in the U.S., across the Americas were definitely ones that. Exploited anti-Semitic stereotypes, racializing Jewish men as traffickers, as pimps, and in framing the women as sort of innocent victims, they they became whitened um, and sort of their their Jewishness was erased.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so it's so fascinating to me. I found all of that to be really interesting. Um, mm-hmm. I want to continue what you were talking about about this sort of paradigm of the victim and the exploiter. Um, And you make this, you know, really fascinating point in the in your introduction about how that dichotomy of victim and exploiter doesn't really account for what you call the moral ambiguity of everyday life, which it was a phrase that I was just really taken with and that I really I've been thinking about a lot just more broadly and how much that, you know, can more accurately reflect what real life is like. So can you talk a little bit about this this shift from victim and exploiter and and how that kind of frames the argument in your book
0: yeah so let's see i mean so to put it in into this historic moment i mean um you know what the so the league of nations and these international anti-trafficking organizations were trying to prove that the systems of legal regulated prostitution that were then in effect in many countries around the world were bad for women, right? So there's a a campaign going on in some ways parallel to today's anti-human trafficking campaigns that you may have seen, you know, you may, you may know about these organizations, you may have seen, you know, posters in, in airports. And one of the things that's interesting about today's campaigns is that they're often, um, you know, really being funded, if not directly run by so, far right Christian organizations or evangelical Christian organizations. Um, and, you know, there are, are many critics of these organizations today that say that the, you know, there certainly are large movements of populations across international borders and in situations that are exploitative. Um, you know, those are generally not for sexual purposes. Um, they're generally for other forms of labor. Um, but the idea of women being kidnapped and forced into sexual servitude is so powerful, right. That it is something that can really draw people in to supporting efforts to combat it. Right. So there's a, and I'm, I'm not the first person to say this by any means, you know, I sort of reference, you know, many other scholars as well as activists who, who, um, talk about this at at great length um you know but there's a deeper question here which is what is the role of of human agency of agency or consent in any form of sex work right specifically in prostitution and these are conversations that were happening certainly in the late 19th century early 20th century um but you know many many of the listeners, this podcast are probably most aware of the ways that these conversations were happening in the 1970s, you know, with second wave feminism um, in, you know, and this was something that was debated among different strands of feminism. Um, you know, the sort of radical feminist um, sort of critique of prostitution and pornography as really a symbol of how patriarchy ultimately exploits women. Right. Um, And whereas, you know, certain other groups of feminists, including um, organizations of people who themselves engaged in this kind of work and, you know, demanded that they that it be called sex work to really focus on the labor aspect, that they be called sex workers, um, that, you know, that they not be called prostitutes, that their lives were fuller than that described by this work that they did. Um, and that, you know, really making the case that the violence, that the violence and trauma that they certainly did experience in their lives was far more likely to come at the hands of police, um, or, you know, if at the hands of clients or pimps, all of that was made worse by systems of regulation, you know, by the carceral state, right? And they said, if, you know, they were... Making cases from the 70s again through today that, um, you know, in some ways paralleled again conversations that were happening over a century ago, where the question is who, it, you know, there, the, if there is violence and exploitation going on, you know, who is to blame for it? What is going to make this better? Right. And just as, you know, different groups of activists. And community leaders and institutions, both local and transnational, were working on this issue, you know, at that time, they, 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 many of the issues are, are very, very similar today. Um, and again, the central question, you know, that, uh, that you raised has to do with what does it mean for people to kind of make choices in their lives, right? Do people have free unfettered choices? How do we talk about consent and agency in situations where people have limited choices, right? And, you know, generally people are making the best of a not great set of choices. Um, But does that mean, is that the same as people being forced, victimized, exploited? Um, You know, and, and most people In general, I don't want to be seen or thought of as victims in this sort of totalizing way, right? People exercise various forms of, if limited, agency in their lives, right? And this is certainly something that, you know, I don't know if we have um, listeners who have read, you know, a lot of literature around the Holocaust that, you know, they sort of work on how do people in extreme situations exert certain forms of agency, right? Um, But also, we're looking at cases here and, you know, a lot of the cases that I bring forward in the book are ones where any of the women, you know, seem to have known what they were getting into. Their families seem to have known what they were getting into. Um, you know, maybe they didn't know everything about it. Um, maybe they were romanticizing aspects of it. Um, but these anti-trafficking organizations were really not successful in rescuing people, right? And part of that may be because they weren't offering great other alternatives. Um, but their lack of success, right, does suggest that, you know, the the alternative offers were not better, right, than the kind of money that could be made. And, you know, in certain cases, kinds of freedom and decision making about romantic choices, about leisure choices, um, you know, that people were, were able to get through, through doing this kind of work and 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 living in this kind of community, because there also was a community offered, um, you know, in this in this space um, to people who who were engaging in sex work. So you know, it's a challenging argument to make, and I don't want to overly romanticize the sort of level of agency that people had or the kinds of lives that people had. Um, but I do want to offer a sort of alternate reading from the one that I think people might come to just assuming um, from the ways that these terms are often used today that they sort of know what trafficking is and was and sort of making certain kinds of assumptions about what prostitution is and was. And, you know, in the way that I try to highlight to the best of my ability, given what archival sources are and how they're limited, I try to highlight the voices as much as possible of the women involved um, and also draw parallels to you know, voices that have, have spoken up about this in more recent decades to sort of think about what are some other ways that we can interpret these narratives, um, that give, you know, a little bit more room to people's, um, to people's lived experiences as being more complicated than, than in sort of complete victimization. Mm
1: -hmm. So I wonder if you could elaborate a little bit on the limited choices that Ashkenazi women specifically were facing at this time, like and kind of what what might have made them want to leave the pale of settlement, for instance?
0: Yeah, I mean we're looking at a time of you know again of war, of industrial revolution, of 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 population dislocation, of poverty, of anti semitism. Um, you know, a time when there was already a lot of Jewish population shift happening from you know, sort of more rural areas to slightly, you know, larger cities and you, you know, you would already see, you know, migration often happens from like smaller areas to like a local capital, right. And then sort of out from there to, um, you know, other international destinations, you know, cities like Odessa already had, you know, sort of large uh, sort of sex work uh, scenes Um you know, another thing that I talk about is sort of limitations in marriage choice that um, women might have had in their local communities. You know, particularly poor women, that you know there may not have been much of a sense of having a choice in who they were going to marry. So, you know, that may have also been a factor in some people's decisions, where if they're not going to have a choice and they know that they're going to have to marry somebody who they're not particularly excited about, they might as well risk, you know, going and having a different kind of life. Um, yeah and those are things that I go into some detail about I mean I really am much more of a Latin American historian than a European historian so I'm sure that there are listeners who know much more about the dynamics of you know the pale of settlement on the ground in this very tumultuous period um but you know some of this is also really interestingly dealt with by the the Yiddish writers right in this time and you uh, you start off with you know the the Sholem Aleichem story which you know i I, I I quote and and find, you know, such a an example of how well known these dilemmas were at the time. Right? It was also a trope, and that Buenos Aires became also kind of a stand-in, right, for talking about um, for talking about sort of international mobility for the purposes of of selling sex. Um, Buenos Aires itself became known as. A city of sin, just, you know, a sort of Vegas becomes that at at a later time, you know, there's a book called the road to Buenos Aires where the author doesn't, you know, this is the the author's French author, um, Albert Londres, he doesn't need to name what he's talking about, what the road to Buenos Aires is, right. Everybody knows what Buenos Aires means. Um, and this sort of idea of a, say, wealthy merchant showing up in the shuttle, you know, maybe from the next town over who's made good in Argentina and sort of, you know, people knew enough about that trope to have a sense, you know, of maybe what might be going on. But, you know, the other options really didn't look so great.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I want to go back to something that you mentioned a little bit earlier, which was that there was a community that one could be a part of if he or she chose to engage in any of the multiple roles like in this world of sex trafficking Um, which I think would be surprising to some people because like you said in the beginning you know this this notion of sex trafficking has been somewhat exoticized and I think that people imagine individuals who are involved in that world as like you know in the under, or it's called the underworld, right? Like in this underground sort of on the margins of society. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the Varsovia Society um, and its members and also talk about what other people call them. They call them the Timaeum and what that means and why they call them that. <laughs>
0: Yeah. So, you know, part of my book is a kind of social history of this organization of um, Jewish brothel owners, madams, pimps, and to some degree, um, sex workers themselves um, that was originally called the Varsovia or the Warsaw Society. Right. So even at the beginning from its foundation, it, it paralleled a landsmanschaft, shaft. Right. A um, a sort of hometown Immigrant association, um, and it also began as a burial society, very standard for you know immigrant, um, sort of immigrant associations of all kinds, including Jewish ones, but not limited to Jewish ones. Um, the group had, as far as I can tell, around four hundred members at its peak. Um, you know, ran its own cemetery. Um, you know, at least one synagogue space, a kind of welfare benefits program. And it existed legally as a mutual aid and burial society for several decades um, until this very dramatic court case broke it up in 1930. Um, and, you know, was founded in the Buenos Aires suburb of, of Virginia in 1906 um, as, you know, kind of immigrant. Voluntary association. One of the arguments I make is that its operations were very much parallel to other immigrant voluntary associations, but its membership wasn't entirely associated um, with the sex industry. And they held regular meetings to defend their interests uh, against against authorities, against also the more mainstream Jewish community. Um, they also seem to have used this structure to coordinate their work together. Right? They would let's move women around among brothels in different locations, um, sort of collectively coordinate importing, you know, sort of the smoothing, the let's say, immigration um, process from Europe into South America. They also circulated capital loans for the development of brothels and other properties. Um, And uh, so, you know, you see it as kind of a a working sort of an association for the facilitation of that work. Um, but also as a place which uh, opened or created, built both a social world and potentially a world in which people could continue to engage in religious practice. So the there's very much a dialectical relationship between this organization and other um, Ashkenazi Jews in Buenos Aires who, you know, from the Jewish, the, the Ashkenazi community didn't, Really, start in Buenos Aires until around uh, the mid 1880s, um, and it was it was quite small, um, and so th- these these folks were very visible at the beginning. That's another argument that I make, where I'm sort of I use census data from 1895 to show how visible um, sort of Jewish brothels were at the heart of the downtown Jewish neighborhood of Onse in the in the capital. Um, really already in, in, in the 1890s. So it was always something that the rest of the Jewish community had to contend with. Um, and so these, the members wanted to be buried as Jews. The rest of the community didn't want to spend eternity next to pimps and prostitutes, right? So they, you know, had been in, pushed out of the Jewish collectivity and, and were still determined to kind of publicly identify as Jews. Um, so they, created their own cemetery. And at this point they kind of made common cause with the, um, the sort of Sephardic and and Moroccan um, Jewish community, which was quite small and sort of together built this, this cemetery in this, um, in this Buenos Aires suburb. So it's, the two are still side by side, you know, with a wall between them. Um, You know, so folks who have relatives in let's say the Moroccan Sephardic cemetery might notice a kind of, um, locked up and broken down cemetery space right next door. And, and that is, you know, the, the remnants of this um, burial ground for the temeim. Um, the rest of the Ashkenazi community used the phrase temeim, which means, you know, really kind of ritually impure, um, to be able to talk about folks without necessarily broadcasting to the larger Spanish-speaking population right what they were talking about because they didn't so it's not great for the jews to be constantly talking loudly about all the you know pimps and prostitutes among your members but it was a something that they very much fought against in this time period and sort of so using use that phrase as a kind of code um to have this conversation um is covered extensively in the yiddish press you know there would be you know, I talk a fair amount about the Yiddish theater and the way in which these different groups kind of <clears throat> struggled for control over the Yiddish theater, maybe even what was shown on stage, um, you know, what was happening in the balconies, was the Yiddish theater going to be a site for kind of family entertainment or was it a site for, you know, um, sex workers to look for clients in the balconies and, you know, potentially even have assignations in that space? um, the religious identification as well. So, you know, um, there's some photographs in the book. You can see this sort of large, um, very large kind of menorah decorating the main gates of this synagogue. You know, the, the, you know, the gravestones are very much sort of in Hebrew, you know, sort of traditional, uh, stones. Um, there, there are also photographs from this, um, there was, so there was this large mansion that the organization that the, 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 the v. McDowell Society had. This large mansion that was sort of taken, you know, taken over in 1929, 1930. And inside that space you can see pictures of what really looks like a synagogue. They have um, you know, pews, they have what's clearly a, a sort of decorated um, Ark for a Torah scroll with like curtains with lions, you know, stands for books. Um, some of the other sources that I found does, you know, sort of suggest that they held religious services, that there's, um, you know, reference to Yom Kippur services where where they collected charitable donations, just as would have been done in a kind of more normative space. Um, and then, but then there are also other um, spaces in this mansion where, you know, sort of ballrooms, you know, really fancy, um, very, very fancy spaces where, you know, they were holding various kinds of parties, social functions, possibly weddings, um, you know, meeting rooms, um, all this, all, all, all these different kinds of things. So if we imagine a, a kind of social world, you know, you can also get a glimpse into in these, you know, world of, of brothels where you had multiple, you know, multiple women kind of living and working side by side, you know, there's various, all, all kinds of room there for people to have a, a social life with one another, right? That isn't just about the work that they're all doing. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. So I want to transition a little bit to talking about some of the organizations out there that were trying to. Prevent or end um, Jewish sex work. So you mentioned earlier the Jewish Association for the Protection of Girls and Women, um, and there's another organization that you talk about in your book called Ezra's Nushim. So I wanted to know if you could talk a little bit, just introduce people maybe a little bit to those organizations. Um, you know what 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 were they motivated by? Um, perhaps how did anti-Semitism figure in to their motivations? Um, And what were the strategies that they employed to try to uh, end Jewish prostitution globally, but especially in Argentina?
0: Yeah. So, um, so the the Jewish association for the protection of girls and women was an international organization based in London with branches in different parts of the world. And, you know, they dealt with various issues relating to, um, you know, women and to some degree children but really the fight against um legal sort of the the fight against legal prostitution right and and then what they argued were the you know the attendant dangers of trafficking was sort of the the central the central goal of this organization They, they also dealt with um bigamy um you know cases where men might um go to another country and then marry somebody else you know, left a wife back in the old country, you know, so they would do things to try to track down those men and try to get them to maybe even pay some kind of child support to the original wife. You know, those are different things done in different cases. Um, but yeah, this was, this was really their main, their main concern. Um, and their Buenos Aires branch, you know, was very, very active and, and it, um, it was called Ezra Nashim. So this is the, basically the same organization. It's a branch of the international organization. Ezras Nashim literally means women's section, as in kind of the you know the separated women's section in in a synagogue. Um, so they're working on women's issues, and again, this is the central kind of Jewish women's issue of the time. Um, so one of the things that I find that, you know, they did, that was very interesting. I mean, they they tried to work together with other organizations to, you know, prevent different um, different organizations in Buenos Aires from, let's say, taking charitable donations from the, you know, Varsovia Society, from the Zvi McDowell Society, um, or, you know, trying to, they had dock workers who would go and, and stand at the docks, meet incoming boats, and, you know, try to make sure that women coming, arriving you know, if they had been, let's say, tricked by somebody or didn't know what they were getting themselves into, and were with some man on the boat who, you know, maybe wasn't their cousin or uncle or husband, you know, they did various things to try to rescue women at that moment of coming off the boat. Again, their success rate was very, very low. Um, and then they moved into the kind of area of trying to trying to restrict and regulate marriage. So after the the Zvi McDowell Society was broken up in 1930, um, I find references to their creation of a system of morality certificates in in, in the mid-1930s, where at least for a short period of time, um, they tried to ensure that no Jewish marriages could take place unless both the bride and the groom could certify that they had had no past kind of entanglement with the domain, right? So they had to prove that there was going to be no taint on future generations, right, of this of this past history.
1: Right. I found that section about the morality certificate so fascinating. And, you know, I think, it, I mean, it was like this background check, basically, that I had never known about. So I thought that was very interesting. Um, that reminds me also of another... Um, issue related to marriage within this story, which is this notion of the shtilachuppah. So I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit and also, um, yeah, continue to discuss how these anti-trafficking organizations attempted to address the shtilachuppah.
0: Yeah, so this, the, the phrase literally means like quiet marriage, right? And, um, you know, so it's basically a Jewish religious marriage, it doesn't necessarily have a civil component to it. Right. So, and, you know, again, there's, there's various, um, you know, books you, you can look at to sort of get a sense of how marriage practices changed over this period, you know, in the Pale of Settlement. Um, uh, but the, it, it the, the took on a very prominent role in these stories about white slavery about trafficking and was targeted by these anti-trafficking organizations um, as a, a sort of a, a policy piece, if you will, that they might, that they could kind of focus on, right? Because their concern was that um, a woman might get married Jewishly, right? Let's say in the old country, um, you know, along the way somewhere. But then upon arriving, in Buenos Aires, you know, her so-called husband, you know, is sort of able to walk away from her um, because there's no, there's no civil component. There's nothing legally binding her to him at that point. Um, And so she can, you know, she can be abandoned and he can kind of continue and marry again and again and again um, and, you know, have no legal responsibility, right. To to any of these women, Um, you know, so sort of, Encouraging people to use and sort of know about um, state structures of marriage ended up being a sort of interesting piece of what the, um, you know, as organization was doing. And certainly some of these higher level conversations among authorities included conversations about this. Right. So this is also kind of a conversation about what is marriage? What is the legal structure of marriage? Um, and at a time of, you know, not population mobility, not only among Ashkenazi Jews, but among other groups, right? How are these populations going to engage with the new society and how are their, what are their family structures going to look like? And, you know, are they going to engage with state institutions, right? Or not? How are they going to engage? Um, in a similar way, Ezra Nashim ends up engaging with the police in Buenos Aires in and sort of Working together with the police in ways that are a little bit surprising, given that you know there was a you know very strong legacy of anti-Semitism, um, you know in the among the in the police in the military. And you know there's a particular character who, who I talk a lot about, Julio Algostaray who ends up being um, he, he's this sort of. Uh, chief of police chief of the kind of local area that, that covers the main um, sort of Jewish downtown neighborhood of Buenos Aires. And he is very committed to this fight against um, sort of trying to clean up prostitution in that neighborhood. And so he ends up, you know, the, the Ezra Snishim ends up kind of working together with him. And I found evidence that they actually gave him this sort of gold medal at one point in the late 1920s, um and he and he ends up you know he sort of emerges in newspapers not just yiddish but also the spanish newspapers and to some degree english newspapers when the um you know varsovia Visum, society is, is broken up in 1930 he emerges as a, as a hero who kind of helped take them down and um in 1930 you know just after this court case there's a coup and Argentina moves into a period of military dictatorship, and he is um, actually promoted immediately to kind of second in command at that point of the whole police, uh, policing system. And it, it seems like that's in part a reward for you know the work that he did kind of taking down this pimp society. And I don't think it should be seen as incidental that he took down a Jewish pimp society, right? So that, again, anti-Semitism you know, sort of everyone knows this is a Jewish pimp society. So for others who are looking on to be able to kind of blame the Jews, right, for prostitution is is, is convenient, right? Um, but it's interesting then also how this organization that is dedicated to trying to combat potential anti-Semitic backlash, right, also ends up working together with historically anti-Semitic institutions. Um
1: right. You know, I'm wondering also, we were talking before about the limited choices that some of these women had, and, you know, for for some of them, like, this, you know, sex trafficking was a, or being, yeah, being involved in sex trafficking as, you know, was a migration strategy. So did these organizations, like Ezra Sinashim, think about what would happen if they, you know? cut off this option for women? Like or was that just not that was just not the framework that they were working in? Like I'm wondering what they thought would happen to them otherwise. Yeah, I mean they
0: definitely were not thinking about this as a migration strategy is, you know, I'm sure something that people were obviously thinking about on the ground, but that would not have been the framework that opponents of trafficking were using, right? Because their narrative was that if you if you end up in prostitution, you're going to die an early syphilitic death, right? They don't see women as having a future. They they it's it's a death sentence to them, right? And so, um, you know, you no, know, no, their vision is when they're they're rescuing women, they're giving them a new life. Again, it doesn't happen very often that they're able to rescue people. You know, there are some sites around the world where they, you know, they in some cases run kind of homes um, for women, you know, they're sort of, but in, in Buenos Aires, they really don't go to that level where they're actually rehabilitating people. Right. Cause they're just not, they're just not that successful at it. Um, you know, I mean, I talk a fair amount about this um, very well-known um, woman, Raquel Lieberman, who um, sort of, you know, escaped, the clutches of the this Zvi Society, and you know, one of the things I do in the book is make her story somewhat more complicated. It's been told many times, um, and you know the the Ezra Neshim, you know, so she does leave prostitution, um, you know, and sort of on, on her own, and begin, runs. She starts running a kind of antique store in the heart of the Jewish neighborhood, and then gets involved uh, again with prostitution, and and ends up marrying a guy who is, you know, who is a, a member of the Varsovia Society. And and then she gets into some conflict with several members. They have some of her belongings. They have some of her money. She goes to the president um, of the Zvi McDonald and says, hey, I want my stuff back. You won't help her. And at that point, she goes to to the police and says, hey, I'm denouncing this organization. Um, and her story has been, um, you know, used as evidence that, you know, as, as, as a way of telling a kind of heroic story about a woman who escaped trafficking, right. Who escaped her exploiters and it was used that way at the time and has continued to be used that way. You know, again, it really does resonate um, now with the, the stories about trafficking that are the g- generally circulating stories about, about international sex trafficking. Um, you know, again, the story that I tell based on a broader range of, of primary sources from the time is somewhat more complicated. Um So, uh, let's see, Why did I bring her up? I wanted to to connect it to this sort of question of what do people do when they leave sex work and what were these organizations imagining that they might do? Um, You know, I mean, I think so. They followed up with her, um, you know, two years or so after the court case and were kind of checking on her and, you know, she slammed the door in their face. She didn't want to have anything to do with them. Um, Their main concern seemed to be that she was living a respectable life um and was sort of appropriately appropriately you know married and living a respectable life but at the same time they didn't want women who had been in sex work to be able to appropriately marry right so i mean to me it's not completely clear what they wanted to have happen once people left i mean i think the idea was that if they were true victims they could be rehabilitated um but if they were not properly behaving right as they seem to be you know, asserting about Raquel Lieberman, for example, you know, it's not, it's not clear to me that they, I don't know if they wanted them to reintegrate into the population. The idea seemed to be more, you know, they'd been running this kind of boycott all the way along. And my sense is that they wanted to keep anyone with any of this kind of taint outside of the community, but, you know, going through some sources from the the 1930s, they seem to draw a distinction between people who could be kind of rehabilitated and people who couldn't. I think it was honestly a little bit random. I think I'm sure they had their own logic, but, um, you know, it seemed to be around, you know, who was seemed to be behaving properly. Uh, Yeah. But I don't, I don't think that was, it it wasn't able to, to be played out very often because they didn't rescue or rehabilitate very many people.
1: Right. So one of the last things I want to ask is, you know, we've been talking about this um, this narrative that uh, you know being a prostitute would be the end of the world. Women were doomed for disease or violence. And on that note about violence specifically, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how the Ashkenazi Jews who were either pimps or otherwise working in trafficking how they viewed themselves within that world in contrast to other pimps and traffickers in that world? Because I noticed in the book, there was this interesting kind of, yeah, there was this interesting self-perception I felt that the Ashkenazim had. Can you talk about that a little bit?
0: Yeah. So, and I also wanted to note that within this organization, um, there was a way for women who aged out of practicing sex work to continue to um, be employed, which was as um you know sometimes as a, a madam in a slightly larger brothel but also as as municipal regulations changed um brothels were were pushed to become smaller and were basically with one um only one sex worker and then one what they called doorkeeper um who was had to be a woman over the age of 40 And so, um, one of the things that I also trace is the relationships between different members of the organization. And often what you would see was, uh, a pair, a husband and wife where the husband might have been sort of managing one or more brothel properties and his wife, you know, these sort of older people would have been a doorkeeper, therefore, you know, trusted to collect money and not do something else with it and keep an eye on and make sure, you know, that everyone was behaving properly. Um. So, you know, there is, again, a story where um, this organization also provides, you know, I see some lines in their own internal documents that they're providing sort of um, ongoing um, financial support for widows and orphans, right, taking on the role of a sort of welfare organization in the absence of that kind of state welfare. Um, And again, I don't want to romanticize it, and I do want to keep in mind that this is from the way that the organization represents itself, right? So, and on that point, um, so the League of Nations did this extensive undercover investigation into trafficking in the early through mid-1920s, producing, you know, thousands and thousands of pages of fascinating documentation, um, and they spent a lot of time in Buenos Aires, and they had this undercover investigator who spoke Yiddish as well as other languages, and he had um, close relationships with, you know, multiple people within, within this world, you know, with, within this sort of men who were, um, who were brothel owners, who were moving women around. And so he what he would do is pretend to be a trafficker himself or or pretend to be somebody who wanted to bring over, you know, another woman from Eastern Europe and was sort of asking questions, you know, um, and he, he would buddy up with these guys and drink with them and hang out and compare jewelry with them. Um, this and, was Kinsey, uh,
1: right? Paul Kinsey? Yeah, this
0: is, yeah, this is Paul Kinsey. And uh, he, you know, so the stories that we get are filtered through his gaze, right? And and the people that he's talking to, generally, he's talking to, you know, his, the sort of brothel owners who he is friendly with, right? So he, and he, he very he, he doesn't generally talk to sex workers themselves. So his, the vision that you get here of sex workers themselves is, is filtered through his lens, which, again, I will say is... You know, he he is a particular person, um, and I, you know, he's he's pretty sexist in the way that he that he talks about stuff, and is sort of, you know, has these relationships with these other men. Um, but the conversations are still fascinating for how these um, you know, these brothel owners or pimps present their own work to their own peers, and they talk about themselves as just regular businessmen doing business just like anyone else. Um, And they compare themselves to men of other ethnic groups who they say are more violent towards the women, you know, in their brothels. They, they say they make this economic argument, right. And they say, we, we, we don't want to be violent, you know, not just because we're morally superior and don't, believe in violence, but because that's bad for business. So you don't want to like mark up the merchandise, right? Is there their argument? And, you know, they make this case that like, you should bring women in with love, with affection, right? Um, and that'll work. They're young and innocent, right? You can trick them. You can love, you know, you can make them think that you love them, even if you don't. But they also, you know, and I, and I talk about this to some extent, that there does seem to be evidence of some romantic sort of genuine affective romantic relationships um, between some of the men and women you know in these circles right And you know this shouldn't be completely surprising just as people can develop romantic affect in an arranged marriage right I mean you could look at it another way and see it as, as Stockholm syndrome. I mean it depends you know how you want to look at it um, but they also talk about in this in these conversations about not being violent right where they're saying, it's a bad business decision to be violent. It's, you know, you get much more of what you want out of people. If if the young woman is in love with the man, she'll do anything for love. So you should go in that direction, right? Um, so yeah, they, they present themselves as, you know, I mean, and you could also think about this as a sort of, you know, mafia caricature, right? We're just legitimate businessmen. Um, but you could think about it another way, which is that, the work they were doing was not illegal. Right. Um, you know, so in a sense they were not illegitimate businessmen.
1: Right. Right. Which I think is a context that is like, you have to get into that context to kind of grasp that notion. Um, so yeah, anyway, I thought that was, thought that was fascinating. Um, so I want to just wrap up and ask you what your next project is and what you're working on now.
0: (sighs) Yeah, so I, I have moved away um, from Jewish history, and I was you know I was pursuing a sort of simultaneous research project as I um, finished this book, and I'm now sort of deep in the writing of it, um, which is a, it's also a sort of gender and sexuality project based in Buenos Aires in the early 20th century, and you know it's a project that looks at um, a group of people who at the time were often called inverts, um, sort of sexual inverts, Um, and they were in, you know, before the current concepts of homosexuality and transgender, um, sort of sexologists, doctors, psychiatrists had other ways of talking about people who didn't fit into sort of normative gender and sexual categories. And um, so, yeah, what I've been collecting is archival, you know, this is another as with this project, this is a kind of archival work that is like needle needle and haystack work where I'm looking at, um, you know, sort of scientific and medical journals, but also popular newspapers for stories about people who, you know, saw themselves and were perceived as sort of outside of usual gender norms in this way. And sometimes at the time they were called, as I said, inverts. Sometimes they were called sort of men, women or women, men. Um, And yeah, I've collected a set of cases where um, both in some of cases experts talked about them, in other cases they um, had various kinds of escapades that brought them into the public eye, into sort of public newspapers um, for, you know, this, this also overlaps with the world of sex work. A number of them were engaged in sex work, um, were potentially engaged in sort of dramatic robberies against their clients, um, you know, or other kinds of things that, that brought them into public attention. So, you know, some of these cases we might call today uh, sort of trans feminine individuals. I also have some trans masculine individuals, some of whom were discovered after death to have been living, you know, for decades as men, but, you know, sort of were born female. Um, And so what I'm looking at how um, both kind of medical experts talked about these individuals, how popular culture talked about them, which was somewhat different, you know, in some cases, very sensationalistic, in some cases kind of picaresque and, like, admiring their interesting adventures, in some cases sort of tragic. Um, there was a set of, of stories about so-called um, male robbers dressed as women who were supposedly, you know, a guild of supposedly men dressing as women in order to pick people's pockets. This was also reflecting a lot of, um, you know, anxieties about, um, immigrants, male immigrants who might have come from some rural area or the Argentine interior and not been wise to what's going on in the big city. Um, but these are also, there are also stories about sex and sort of ways of talking about sex that can happen in medical journals and in veiled ways in popular culture that sort of couldn't happen directly in other ways. So yeah, so it's and it's, this is an entirely sort of early 20th century project. So it's really before, the language of or the concept of transsexuality emerges. Um, and, you know, it's important to think about also how these, there there's sort of various Latin American categories of um, sort of gender and sexual categories that don't fall into, you know, the boxes of homosexuality or lesbianism or sort of transgender or transsexuality that are, that are developed later. And I'm sort of fascinated by how these, individuals might have seen themselves to the extent to which we can get at that but also what this tells us about um gender and sexuality more broadly in this society as it is you know becoming modern in this in this moment
1: wow so interesting i'm really i'm looking forward to reading that um well thank you so much mir for joining us today it was really a pleasure to have you
0: Thank you so much for the opportunity to talk to your audience. Yeah,
1: for sure. All right. So we are going to sign off now. And once again, I'm McKenna Mezostrano and this was Mir Yarfitz on his book, Impure Migration, Jews and Sex Work in Golden Age, Argentina.